So, good morning. I'm uh, Martin Cheadle from the Perlman School of Medicine, the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm really thrilled to be with three wonderful colleagues of mine in presenting this uh, lecture on assessing and managing odd neuropathic pain states. Full disclosure, I'm the odd one in the group, and that's how we kind of named it. So, I have Dr. Peter Przbykowski, who was uh, formerly one of our partners at the University of Pennsylvania and is now in private practice at Relieve Us. Wouldn't you go to a place that had a name like Relieve Us? That would be awesome. Dr. Peter Yee is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at the Perlman School of Medicine, and Dr. Ignacio Badiola. So we're going to try to walk through this, a two-hour you know, uh, presentation. Um, we're trying to make it as interesting as possible, and I'm, I'm assuming because of the good turnout that this is kind of an interesting area, like it's something different, right? I was talking to Dr. Przbykowski that said, we've beaten the opioid death to death, resurrected the horse, and beat it again. And I think people are interested in like, I, I see these really interesting different cases, how can I manage them differently? Or when I refer them to a pain physician, you know, what am I really referring them to? Because that's really important too. So real quickly, how many people are in family care, family practice? How many are physicians, nurses, pharmacists? Who doesn't know who they are? <laughs> so a lot of family practice. Um, what about pain physicians? Okay, a good number of pain physicians, great, great. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Przbykowski, and uh, thank you for coming. Thank you, Marty, for that introduction. Uh, we want to thank Pain Week for having us back for um, our second year um, as faculty. So we're going to, each faculty member is going to address the topics of post-thoracotomy pain syndrome today, post-mastectomy pain syndrome, and chronic uh, post-inguinal hernia repain. We have no conflicts of interest. None of us are paid by any of the uh, medical device companies or the pharma companies. And we're not going to talk about any off-label use of any of the medications today. Um, so the objectives for um, you guys today is uh, demonstrate the effective interventional strategies for these common um, odd neuropathic pain states um, to describe the pathophase of post-mastectomy pain, which Dr. Badiola will get into. And then to kind of examine what roles um, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments play in treatment of these um, odd neuropathic pain disorders. And Dr. Cheetah will kind of go into the greater motor imagery and cognitive behavioral therapies that can be used for this patient population. So there's our titles. This is what we're going to discuss today. Um, I was former faculty at Penn for about two years before joining private practice back um, in January of this year, so I'm kind of coming at it from a different angle. Still treating these patients um, in a private practice setting. Um, so what I'll review is um, the three common major neuropathic pain complaints. And I'm going to really go into how common these disorders are. Um, Dr. Yi will uh, go over how interventional treatments can be used, and Dr. Badiola will go over the medications um, pharmacology with Dr. Cheadle going over the non-pharmacological treatments. So two case studies to begin with, and we'll kind of wrap around at the end of the lecture and ask some questions about these case studies. So the first one's a 52-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with an estrogen-based uh, breast cancer. She underwent bilateral mastectomy followed by radiation therapy and chemo, and she was placed on uh, an aromatase inhibitor medication postoperatively. Um, several months postoperatively, she came into pain clinic knowing burning pain in both of her bilateral, um, basically, armpit locations. She was placed on therapeutic doses of gabapentin, and her pain symptoms persisted and became more intense and diffuse, and she started to experience some depression along with her chronic pain complaints. 
Second one is a 42-year-old uh, with a history of inguinal hernia repair nine months ago with worsening inguinal pain that began two months after surgery. Uh, a recurrent hernia was ruled out. She was sent to a pain clinic um, on Oxy-10 four times a day. And gabapentin was started and titrated to 900 TID with mild pain relief. Diagnosis was of post-inguinal herniopathy was made, and she underwent diagnostic ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerve blocks with complete relief of her symptoms. However, this only provided two weeks of uh, pain relief. Dr. Badiol will kind of come back at the end of the lecture and go over what he did for this patient um, to give long-term pain relief. So how common are these disorders? So probably the most well-studied is post-mastectomy pain syndrome just because it affects such a large um, female population in our country. And it's well known. There's um, Susan G. Kuhn and Walk for the Cure, American Cancer Society. There's a lot of literature out there for lay people. Um, so they're more common than we would think. I think we have made headway, especially with post-thoracotomy pain in terms of advancing surgical techniques. Rather than doing things open, a lot of thoracic surgeons, if the tumor um, can be operated on with either a robot, like a da Vinci robot, or with a video-assisted thoracoscopic procedure, we are making some headway, but we're still seeing patients with chronic pain postoperatively. So I'll go over the incidence and prevalence of these uh, three different pain states. And so just for some quick epidemiologic definitions, incidence is the measure of probability of occurrence of a given condition in a population within a uh, specified period of time. And prevalence is the proportion of cases um, in the population at a given time rather than the rate of occurrence. So post-mastectomy pain syndrome. If you were to go to the American Cancer Society today as a lay person diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, what would you find on post-mastectomy pain syndrome? So cancer.org, they, um, they're reporting on their websites that their studies show between 20 to 30 percent of women will develop symptoms of post-mastectomy pain syndrome after surgery. It's thought to be linked to um, damage done to the nerves in the armpit and chest during surgery. And risk factors are young women, um, patients who undergo, undergo axillary lymph node dissection versus sentinel lymph node biopsy, or patients that have had um, radiation therapy after surgery. So some things I'd like to mention. Um, it really depends with post-mastectomy pain syndrome. You want to take a good history and know what procedure was done on your patient. Was it a complete mastectomy? Was it a, a modified radical mastectomy? And you want to kind of go into depth in terms of whether or not there was lymph node dissection that occurred because that really is what puts this patient population at risk for developing chronic um, post-mastectomy pain syndrome. Whenever you're doing an axillary lymph node dissection, you're in the axilla, you're around the brachial plexus, you're around nerves that can be injured, whether during the operation or postoperatively, whether a hematoma occurs and ischemia occurs in that area. Um, so it's really important to take that history at the initial intake when you see these patients. Risk factors for young, why are young women at risk for developing this pain syndrome? So currently, the American Cancer Society is recommending um, women between the ages of 40 to 44 can get annual mammography and uh, breast exams. Women between the ages of 45 and 54 should have annual mammographies and breast exams. So patients who are younger, the females in their 30s who maybe have BRCA, BRCA mutations, are developing these highly invasive tumors, most likely because they're not getting their annual breast exam at that young age. Uh, risk factors um, for pain, obviously, whenever we have radiation into the axilla, you're actually radiating nerves. You can develop chronic pain postoperatively. Typically, you know, if, if it's hard for you to figure out with the history whether or not the patient had a lymph node dissection 
or a, a radical mastectomy. You can tell because usually these patients come in with swollen arms, lymphedema, unable to uh, put IVs in that extremity, take uh, blood pressure measurements in that extremity as well. So another well-known site is a uh, national site, Susan G. Komen. We all know um, there's a lot of Walk for the Cures that occur all over the country. So if you're to go Google their website, um, they're reporting about 25% of women. Um, the nerves surrounding tissues are injured during breast surgery, and this can lead to burning persistent, basically neuropathic pain, um, an area of the surgical scar or the underarm of the affected side. So once again, well-known website. So this is something that our patients are going to when they're given the diagnosis of um, breast cancer and something that's going to weigh heavily on your mind when you have two well-known websites saying, you know, maybe one out of every four patients are at risk for developing this chronic um, pain syndrome afterwards. In terms of the nerves that can be damaged, I think, Dr. Yu will get into that a little bit uh, more in depth. But whenever you're doing a mastectomy, obviously the breast tissue is outlined superiorly by the clavicle, medially by the sternum, and laterally by the lat, which is on the um, pec major fascia. And it's really when we go laterally on the pec major fascia at the lat where you can get nerve damage, whether that's long thoracic nerve and you get damage to the serratus anterior, and your patient's come in kind of with a wing scapula. You can actually get intercostal nerve damage so where they're reporting rib pain, or another major nerve that's injured is this uh, intercostal brachial nerve that Dr. Yee will talk about a little bit as well. So more um, up-to-date literature and annals of surgical oncology. Um, consecutive female patients undergoing breast resection over a five-year period from 2008 to 2012. They had a minimum of a one-year follow-up um, were included. It was a single-center study based out of Cleveland. It was a retrospective chart review. 470 patients met the inclusion criteria, and the incidence of post-mastectomy pain syndrome in those 470 patients was about 15%. So a little bit lower than what Susan G. Komen and the American Cancer Society are saying. Risk factors, um, as with all neuropathic pain conditions, uncontrolled diabetes, a history of diabetic neuropathy, fibromyalgia, axillary surgery, axillary node dissection, and taxane-based chemotherapy. It's pretty well established that any chemotherapeutic agents are neurotoxic. So it's probably the best studied pain syndrome just because there's so many patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer and are undergoing surgical treatments. Um, there's a high volume of cases. There's plastic surgeons at Penn now that all they do is breast reconstruction tram flaps um, every day of the week in our ORs. There's a high burden on society because we have a lot of women who are diagnosed at a young age and we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to prevent chronic pain from you know, forming this patient population. And there's heavy interest from both the patient and the lay population. Like I said, there's multiple um, cancer societies, Susan G. Komen Foundation, where you know, family members are getting involved um, with loved ones and doing these walks to help. So speaking a little bit, changing subject from post-mastectomy to post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, we have made some headway, mostly because I think of our surgical techniques have changed. We used to use these um, steel retractors in the OR, rib spreaders, where there's a lot of compression and ischemia on the intercostal nerves. We've made some changes with surgical techniques now that I think we're getting better results and seeing less of these patients, but we're still seeing them. So a review published in the um, Thoracic Journal in 2004 was reporting up to 50% of patients were having um, post-thoracotomy pain after surgery, and 30% of patients were having pain still four or five years post-operatively. And at that time, they were saying, based on current evidence, it's still not possible to draw conclusions regarding whether there's any ideal surgical technique and or analgesic protocol. Um, and preemptive analgesia initiated prior to surgery shows promise 
and might help the incidence, reduce the incidence of post-thoracotomy pain syndrome. Um, another, this was a um, systematic review article from Journal of Pain, which is a well-respected journal back in 2014. They wanted to determine incidence and severity of post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, um, three and six months post-thoracotomy. Um, they um, grouped 1,400 patients from 17 studies at three months and around 1,400 at six months. Um, and they found that the incidence of chronic pain at three and six months after thoracotomy were 57% and 40%, for, excuse me, 47% respectively. And the severity of pain on zero to 100 VAS scale um, were rated at 30 um, at three months and 32 at six months. So another study performed in China, this was a retrospective study um, of patients who had pain after um, post-thoracotomy. They went to identify patients, um, it was basically patients who had an open or video-assisted thoracic procedure between the years of 2010 and 2012 at a major academic um, institution in Beijing. Um, they found that the point prevalence of post-thoracotomy pain syndrome following surgery was around 25%, and the neuropathic component was around 30%. And this study was a little alarming because it was reporting nearly one out of every four patients that underwent surgery developed post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, and only a third of them um, were accompanied with the neuropathic component. So when I think about that, they're reporting that almost one out of every four patients who had surgery developed um, pain at the surgical site or, or pain around the surgical site um, at this academic institution in China. So another thing the study mentions is an increased risk for patients who are younger, younger age, um, were female or had prolonged chest tube drainage. And that's something we tend to see in our clinic too. The longer chest tubes are in sight um, post-thoracotomy, the more it is difficult to treat their pain postoperatively, and they tend to sometimes develop chronic pain. So switching from um, post-thoracotomy pain, so we're seeing studies reporting anywhere from around 15 to 25%. For breast post-mastectomy pain, around 25%. For post-inguinal hernia pain, um, British uh, Journal of Surgery back in 2002, it was a, uh, they determined chronic pain after both laparoscopic versus an open repair um, from patients that underwent repair from January of 98 to 99. 454 patients replied to the survey, and what they found was that of the 454, 136, or around 30%, had chronic pain. And it was more common to have pain in the open procedure versus the laparoscopic, and that tends to be because the open procedure is much more invasive. In terms of inguinal hernia repair pain, when you talk about inguinal hernia repairs, there's three main types. There's a uh, herniotomy, where you just basically relieve the hernia sac, close it, put it back. There's a herniopathy, where it's, you reduce the sac and you actually repair the inguinal canal, the posterior wall. And then there's actually a hernioplasty, where you remove the sac, repair the inguinal canal, the posterior wall, and you actually place mesh in. So that's, that's the most common procedure that's performed in this day and age for patients who have um, inguinal hernias, um, and there's still much debate in the surgical field as to in terms of what the best approach is. Um, it has been shown and proven in multiple Cochrane reviews that patients that get repaired with mesh do have better long-term benefit in terms of recurrence of, of hernia. Um, what this study showed was that patients that had pain um, more common in the, in the open procedure than the laparoscopic. Another study in 1996, this is a little bit earlier, um, this was a prospective study with patients, um, they're randomized into three treatment arms who are seen at 6, 12, and 24 months post-op. Basically, they're, they're randomized into the different types of hernia repair that could occur. 
At one year, 63% of patients had groin or inguinal pain and 12% had moderate to severe. At two years, um, nearly half had pain and 10% of those continued to report moderate to severe pain that was affecting their activities of daily living. All three techniques were external surgical repairs. They were not laparoscopic. And authors concluded at that time that new, new techniques needed to be developed. And one of those new techniques, like I said, is now the um, laparoscopic repair. The problem with the laparoscopic repair is pretty complex, and it takes surgeons about 200 to 250 procedures of doing that repair to really become experts in it. Another study published in the European Journal of Pain, um, this is from a um, study based out of Sweden, um, had 2,834 patients that had repairs, and 2,583 patients um, were registered for the study between 98 and 2004. Um, 2005, 2,421 patients were still alive. They filled out a questionnaire um, concerning post-operative continuation of pain. Had a 72% response rate, which is pretty good. And out of those patients, 519 or 30% stayed, stated they had pain in the operative site to some extent within the past week. And then 98%, or excuse me, 98 patients or 6% of the um, respondent population said that pain interfered with their activities of daily living. So, you know, these pain states do exist. I think we're still making um, advances in terms of the surgical approach, whether it's for post-thoracotomy or inguinal pain syndrome. There's still a lot to be done in terms of surgical approach for uh, patients with um, breast cancer. And, you know, surgeons, both plastic surgeons and um, the uh, onc doctors who are doing these procedures are trying to advance the field. Um, in terms of preemptive and preventative analgesia, Dr. Yu will talk about that in a little bit here. We are making headway in terms of putting catheters in these patients before incisions made and, and keeping catheters in 24 or 48 hours postoperatively, um, where we never used to do that before. Um, so hopefully, as these techniques advance, we'll see less of these um, patients coming into our clinic. But for now, you know, there's still a role for us to be treating them with both interventional and um, medications. So with that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Yu. I, want, I wanted to make one comment. So what we're going to do is we go through all of this. So we're, you know, talk, thank Dr. Prisikowski. So we're going to go through sort of the interventional part of treating these. And I think everyone, is, this is a very crowded room because I think that all of you have to deal with these patients. They come in and you don't know what the heck to do. Should I just throw gabapentin at them? So as we go through all these approaches in terms of the interventional, the pharmacologic, and non-pharmacologic, We'll have plenty of time at the end, but I want you to, th I'd rather do it where we think of cases that have been really perplexing to you, and then I'll come out in the audience and we can kind of review the case, you know, of ones that really just stick in your mind and how we could have kind of managed them from a different perspective. Yep. So, um, kind of along those lines, can I just have a show of hands again of how many people here have treated patients that have either any of these um, odd neuropathic pain disorders? And then I know that we um, asked that if there are pain physicians here. Can I see those hands again? There's a good number. Any interventional pain physicians that actually do some of these interventions? Great. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of go um, explain some of the procedures that are available for some of these neuropathic pain syndromes. And I'll, I'll, I'll go into some of the detail, but I won't bore you too much with the specifics. Um, and I'll try to go into some of the evidence-based um, reasons on why we do some of these procedures for these patients. Um, so as Dr. Prasprykowski was talking about, some of these post-operative pain disorders that we see are fairly common in the population. 
Um, and some of the things that we can offer are these interventions for these patients. I just want to um, emphasize that these interventions aren't a cure-all for these pain conditions. It's just um, something that we can offer as an adjunct to a multimodal approach. And as Dr. Badiola will talk about medications and Dr. Cheadle talks about some of the um, psychological um, therapies that these patients can undergo, all those things together usually um, result in the best outcomes for these patients in the end. Um, so saying that, um, the objectives of this part of the uh, lecture is to examine the non-pharmacological and interventional approaches to treat these um, pain syndromes. I'm going to talk about the same syndromes, post-mastectomy pain syndrome, post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, and post-inguinal hernia pain syndrome. Um, the first one, post-mastectomy pain syndrome, um, like Dr. Presky was talking about, it is fairly common um, in women who get mastectomies. Um, and a big thing that we talked about is this preemptive analgesia, um, which suggests that preemptive analgesia may limit some of the post-mastectomy pain syndromes that we see in patients. So pretty much, what, is, what exactly does that mean, preemptive analgesia? Um, so there's a theory that kind of treating the pain or anesthetizing the pain prior to a noxious stimuli to the body will prevent some of the long-term consequences of pain. Um, I'll kind of go over that a little bit more in detail, looking at uh, preemptive analgesia versus preventative. Um, but a big thing to kind of prevent some of the incidence of post-mastectomy pain syndrome is looking at preemptive um, therapies that, that can be done for, for these patients. And a simple thing that you can do is wound infiltration with a local anesthetic, um, either using something like bupivacaine or ropivacaine prior to the start of surgery. Um, you know, so if you have a good relationship with the surgeons that you work with, um, people that are doing these breast surgeries, to really encourage them to maybe try to inject a local anesthetic prior to starting their surgeries, that is something that can help. Um, there was a small study, it was a randomized control study, looking at about 46 women who got either ropivacaine versus saline um, as an injection preemptively prior to a surgical incision. Um, they found that the ropivacaine group had less pain at six hours, which seems to be obvious because ropivacaine should last that long, um, and they had more mobility in their arm. But the thing was that two months later, this ropivacaine group also had less pain as well. Um, so it's not just something that sticks around in the periop period. It's something that can have longer-lasting effects. One of the big uh, therapies that people recommend for um, preemptive analgesia for mastectomies is what, what are known as paravertebral catheters. Anyone perform paravertebral catheters at all? Some, yeah. It's, uh, I don't think it's very commonly done. Um, and I think it's something that um, was done a little bit more commonly in the past, and it's trying to get some traction again in, in uh, doing some of these procedures in the OR prior to women getting a mastectomy. But pretty much the paravertebral catheter um, is kind of placed in this what we call paravertebral space. It's a wedge-like space in the, uh, right next to the vertebral body in the thoracic spine. Um, it's right where the nerve rootlets come out um, off the spinal cord, and then it's placed by putting a needle right against this transverse process and kind of um, going into the tissue here in this paravertebral space. So obviously there are some risks to it because right anterior to it you have your lungs, so you have your parietal uh, pleura there that you can 
you can puncture if you go too far. So it's kind of a risky procedure, which I think is why a lot of people don't like doing it so much. But this is actually something that um, can really help patients that are getting mastectomies to have um, lower incidences of post-mastectomy pain afterwards. So this paravertebral catheter is placed, like I said, you walk off the transverse process and you kind of can use a loss of resistance syringe, much like you, uh, when you use an epidural, and kind of go into this tissue plane right here. Um, there is a retrospective study looking at paravertebral catheters, about 280 patients. Um, about half of them got a mastectomy done. And they found that patients who had these paravertebral catheters had pain relief, which lasted about a month um, after the surgery. So 88% of these patients had good relief for a month. Um, and then even afterwards, at five months, a good number um, still had some pain relief. Dr. Presbykowski was kind of alluding to some of the causes of post-mastectomy pain syndrome. Um, and what we call these neuromas, or just kind of bundles of nerves that form, especially in the area of the axilla, is a major cause of pain for patients that have mastectomies. Um, a simple thing that can usually be done, if you, if you do a physical exam on a patient, um, and you can actually feel under their surgical incision a little bump or this neuroma, a simple thing that can be done usually just to um, inject it with a local anesthetic, and oftentimes that's enough for patients to have some relief of their pain. Um, and you can repeat that as, as necessary or as much as they want. Um, one of the reasons why this pain is so common is because of this intercostal brachial nerve, which, um, like I said, Dr. Presbykowski was alluding to earlier, it's a branch off of the second intercostal nerve, um, and it innervates the medial aspect of the arm. So oftentimes when, when women get an axillary lymph node dissection, um, it's very commonly dissected, and then post-operatively, post it's a very common reason why women have pain. Um, so especially if someone has a lymph node dissection, it's very, very common that this nerve is probably dissected or injured, which is a major cause of pain for women who have had mastectomies. Um, like I said, damage to this nerve has contributed to uh, a major cause for women having pain. Um, there were, interestingly, you know, think, looking at things that can be done afterwards, um, you're not just limited to just injecting the neuroma in that axilla area, if you can feel it. Um, do, do we have any practitioners here that are using ultrasound these days? Yeah, so ultrasound these days, um, it's gaining popularity, and it's not something that just radiologists do. It's something that we use very commonly to aid us in a lot of our procedures. And interestingly, I found just this small prospective study looking at 16 patients um, where the provider used an ultrasound to kind of look for the space where the intercostal brachial nerve was running. Um, and then he injected uh, a little bit of a local anesthetic into that area. And I'll show you some pictures kind of where those injections were placed. So you can see here, this is the second rib. We said that the intercostal brachial nerve comes off of the second intercostal nerve. So they look for the second rib, look at the pec major and minor muscles, um, and the stratus anterior. Actually, you can see the needle faintly here, and they uh, use the ultrasound to kind of bring the needle tip right under the pec minor and above the serratus anterior and inject a fluid layer, layer of local anesthetic to kind of anesthetize that nerve. Um, what were the results? Um, in the patients, there was no noticeable difference when they were at rest. 
Um, but when they were trying to move that arm that was affected, they actually did have pain relief. Um, and they did what's called this qualitative sensory testing, where um, they kind of tested different types of stimulation, cold, hot, and kind of marked those areas in women. You can see that um, prior to getting the neuroblocks, the area of where they had sensitivity was pretty large. And then post-injection, that area reduces significantly. So it, it can be something that helps decrease the area of their pain. Um, another thing I want to mention is acupuncture for post-mastectomy pain syndrome. Um, I think these days a lot of people want complementary or, or alternative methods to treat their pain, and acupuncture is definitely one of the options. Um, there is some evidence that acupuncture, um, it can reduce the pain from post-mastectomy syndrome. Um, they actually looked at studies looking at traditional versus sham. So I, I don't know how familiar people are with um, acupuncture, but it's something that's been developed over thousands and thousands of years. Um, traditionally, people have uh, know the meridians that go across the body, and there are certain points that you use to treat certain, certain conditions. So they actually looked at looking at traditional acupuncture, where you place those needles in those specific points, versus sham, where it didn't really matter if you were in those meridians or not. Um, and they actually found that it didn't really matter if it was traditional or just sham. Just the, the sheer act of placing the, the acupuncture needles into that area can help decrease some of the pain. Um, other, other interventions that can be used for patients that have pretty much refractory pain after much of the uh, medications have been used and some of these interventions have been trialed, if they still don't have pain relief, um, a couple other options that can be offered is a spinal cord stimulator um, or an intrathecal pump. Um, so, like I said, these are kind of more for refractory patients who have not had success with some of the other interventions. Um, placing a spinal cord stimulator into the epidural space um, and leaving a lead in connected to a uh, battery in, that's implanted under the skin, um, and it kind of provides paresthesias into the area of pain. That can give patients some pain relief, but like I said, it's not very commonly done. And then these intrathecal catheters, which um, I think are kind of falling out of favor more and more because it's a little bit complex to manage those patients. Um, placing a catheter into this, the intrathecal space where the medication is infused into the CSF, um, that can be an option as well. But I think most uh, practitioners use intrathecal catheters these days more for kind of end-of-life palliative care conditions rather than something like this. Um, and this is just the pump that's placed usually in the abdomen and you wrap the catheter around uh, to the back where it goes into the intrathecal space. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about post-thoracotomy pain syndrome. Um, and again, the issue of preemptive versus preventative analgesia comes up again. Um, I'm just going to read this quote real quick. So in contrast to preemptive analgesia, which involves administration of analgesia before surgical invention, um, so like I, I talked about injecting the area with a local anesthetic prior to um, cutting the patient, preventative analgesia is something more of a wider concept. Um, where the aim is to minimize uh, sensitization that's induced by noxious stimuli that's um, 
that comes intraoperatively or postoperatively. So they're saying basically the timing of your therapy doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't have to always be before a noxious stimuli is, um, is performed. It can be done intraoperatively or postoperatively as well, just as long as um, it's something is done to help with their pain. So basically it's decreasing the peripheral sensitization um, that happens when there's a noxious stimuli that, that happens, uh, that occurs in the body, and that de therefore decreases central sensitization. So uh, just kind of, I know this is a busy slide, but I just kind of wanted to briefly talk about um, what they do recommend for post-thoracotomy pain syndrome. And a lot of it is, again, focusing on uh, preemptive or preventative analgesia. Um, whoops, sorry. So two of the big procedures that are done are the paravertebral catheters for a thoracotomy or a thoracic epidural that's placed. And this is usually done prior to the surgery. Um, those are two of the recommended procedures that um, they say should be done prior to a thoracotomy. And then a couple other things, intercostal blocks, um, which can be recommended. Um, intercostal nerve cryoanalgesia, which is not recommended. Um, but we'll talk a little bit more about this intercostal nerve block for, for an option that can be used post-thoracotomy when patients have had their surgery and have, still have pain you know, six months, eight months, a year after surgery. So again, the paravertebral catheter is placed in that same space where we talked about for the post-mastectomy pain um, versus an epidural, which is placed more um, in the, centrally in the spinal canal in the epidural space. Um, there is debate kind of over which type of catheter is more beneficial for patients who have thoracotomy. So all the subsequent um, adverse events or side effects that can happen after thor thoracotomy with um, decreased ventilation in the lung, which can cause atelectasis, which can cause pneumonia, infection, um, decreased inability to move around and get up, which causes an increased incidence of DVTs. All those things while you're in the hospital can be prevented by placing either a paravertebral catheter or a thoracic epidural catheter. Um, like, this, like I said, there's some debate as to which is better, but both types of catheters are recommended. And for reasons that I mentioned before, a lot of people are a little hesitant to do these paravertebral catheters just because of the proximity of the lung. So after a patient has had surgery, like I said, uh, months after a patient still have this post-thoracotomy pain, what, what are some of the interventional options for patients afterwards? So intercostal nerve blocks, which target the nerves that run un under the rib, kind of depending on the dermatomal distribution of where the pain is, is something that can be offered for patients. Um, there was a retrospective review looking at um, patients who had intractable thoracic wall pain. Um, and they did intercostal nerve blocks with a local anesthetic and steroid. And about 79% of these patients had good relief just after that. Um, the issue with that is that that's not necessarily, necessarily a long-lived procedure that gives relief. Um, so 32% of these patients decided to proceed with a neurolysis with, um, with alcohol, where they inject um, the alcohol and produce a chemical neurolysis along the nerves. And then a good number, 62%, reported having improvement in their pain after the, the chemical neurolysis. Um, I just stuck this in just to show you kind of, if there's a lesion out here anteriorly where uh, 
it blocks the intercostal nerve. Doing an intercostal nerve block can help, but what if something is kind of closer to the center, uh, central nervous system near the spine or where the dorsal root is? Um, there are some other options that can be used for that. There was a little bit older study by Cohen in 2006 um, looking at a retrospective uh, analysis of about 50 patients. Um, they actually did either a, a pulsed intercostal nerve block um, of, of the intercostal nerves out a little bit laterally versus a pulsed dorsal root ganglia um, procedure, and they looked at that versus pharmacotherapy. Um, they found that this pulsed RF of the dorsal root ganglia showed better treatment when looking at pain relief at three months. Just kind of what they did, uh, I guess it doesn't show up that well, but basically they placed the needle here near the dorsal root. They inject a little bit of dye to ensure that the, the needle tip is in the right place going into the epidural space, and this is just a lateral view looking at the foramen here. Um, so that is one option that can be done. I don't think it's done very commonly for patients, um, especially the pulsed RF, because it's not reimbursed at all by insurance companies. So it's hard to justify doing that for patients if they can't afford to pay for it or their insurance company isn't paying for it at all, because it's deemed as an experimental um, intervention. And then lastly, looking at post-inguinal hernia pain. Um, a lot of the, the pain from post-herniography comes from the lumbar plexus. The nerves that make up the lumbar plexus, the iliohypogastric, ilioinguinal, and the genital femoral nerve, those are usually the main culprits that cause um, pain for post-inguinal hernia syndrome. So classically, these nerves can be blocked um, in a pretty simple manner. Um, the big landmark that you use is the ASIS, anterior superior iliac spine. And you go about uh, two inches medially and two inches inferiorly for an ilioinguinal nerve block. And oftentimes you can just kind of blunt the needle tip and feel the, the needle tip kind of going through the tissue, tissue planes. And typically you kind of want to feel two pops with that needle, and I'll show you some ultrasound pictures to explain why. Um, and then for iliohypogastric block, you can kind of use the same landmark, the ASIS, and go just one inch over and one inch inferior. And for a genital fem, um, you kind of go near the pubis synthesis. So like I said, more and more we're using ultrasound these days to kind of do um, a lot of our procedures. And this is why, because you get pretty good pictures in terms of where your needle can go. Here you have your um, external oblique, your internal oblique, and your transversus muscles. We know that the iliolingual nerve runs actually between this plane of the internal and um, transversus muscles. So when you're Going through, you want to feel these two pops normally when you do it without any imaging. But with ultrasound, you can see it a lot better. So oftentimes, you can get better uh, results with patients that get this type of injection. So after doing a diagnostic block, which you just use a local anesthetic, um, you can proceed with the neurolysis with either alcohol or phenol. Um, the nerves do regenerate after a while, and that can cause pain again. And so it's something that can be repeated um, over the course of time for patients. Um, there's an option to, to offer radio frequency ablation of those nerves, um, especially doing a pulsed RF more at the nerve roots. But like I said, oftentimes it's very hard to get those uh, nerve blocks approved because it's pulsed RF again. Um, there is a small case report just looking at five patients who had 
Um, 75 to 100% relief for six to nine months after getting a pulse RF of the nerve roots at T12, L1, L2. Um, surgery is also another option for these patients. Um, you can actually excise out the iliohypogastric the iliohypogastric or genital femoral nerves. And the other option, um, Dr. Prespikowski was talking about the different types of approaches for post for inguinal hernia surgeries. And oftentimes when they do place the mesh, um, patients want the mesh out because they think that's a source of their pain. Um, so mesh removal is an option. Um, however, it, it doesn't seem to get very good results. So this was just a small published study, actually 52% complete relief. I, I find that a little high in kind of the patients that I see who have had this type of procedure, um, but it is something that can be offered to them to get the mesh removed. Um, nerve stimulation is also an option here. Um, looking at these uh, laparoscopic placements of a pretty much spinal cord stimulator, which is actually placed on the psoas or quadratus muscles um, at the lumbar plexus where these nerve roots come out from, from the spine before they become peripheral nerves. Um, that's something that's more investigational and there's little data available for that. Um, there are other things that can be done with the nerve, uh, with the nerve stimulator, which can be placed a little bit more peripherally, and I think um, Dr. Badiola will talk a little bit about that as well. So, and with that, I'll hand that over to Dr. Badiola. And who says interventional pain medicine isn't sexy? <laughs> <laughs> so before we just take a two-minute break, and any questions for Dr. Yi or Dr. Prisbikowski about any of the procedures? So, especially for a thoracotomy case, um, the general consensus is that normally you do need an epidural at least for these. And most um, anesthesiologists or periop practitioners do place a, a thoracic epidural. The problem is that a lot of smaller hospitals don't necessarily have the resources to kind of follow them postoperatively because they do need to stay in for a few days to get the most benefit. Um, and there's potential of side effects and things that can happen when you have an epidural that's out on the floor and if you have nurses and uh, people that know, don't know how to necessarily manage them quite well. Um, so that is more routinely done in the OR. Um, doing things like a paravertebral catheter, like I said, isn't as common, um, especially for the mastectomies, it's not commonly done. There are other things that are, um, like I said, with the advent of ultrasound and using ultrasound for procedures, um, where you can actually block the, the nerves through the pec muscles, um, which can be done for mastectomy. I, I think that might gain a little bit more favor, and that might be something that's more routinely done in the future. So is that partly limited by the insurance companies, where they don't want to pay for length of stay? With an epidural? So normally the epidural is paid for for at least a couple of days. I think more of the issue is a lot of hospitals don't have a, a pain service to follow these patients afterwards. Other questions? Uh, what is So with the preemptive analgesia, yeah, so I think there's a lot of debate on that. Um, you know, trying, because you're, you're causing an injury or a noxious stimuli when you're doing surgery, you have a lot of 
release of the local inflammatory mediators and things like that that occur at that level. So doing a lot of the preemptive um, procedures is to try to limit some of that sensitization which goes into the central nervous system, which kind of um, might be a reason which they hypothesize might be a reason why people do have chronic pain afterwards. So really trying to aggressively target um, either preemptive or preventative anesthesia in the periop period can help prevent some of these long-term issues with pain. There are some seats up here if people don't want to sit on the floor. Some seats up here and here. Yeah, so like, like I said, the data is very limited. Repeat, repeat the question. Repeat. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so he was asking um, about the DRG stimulation for um, inguinal hernia pain. So I know some of the spinal cord stem companies have come out with new techniques to try to target the DRG. Um, and I think that's definitely a possibility to place the, the spinal cord stimulator at the level of the DRG to treat some of these um, inguinal hernia pain issues. Um, but like I said, because it's such a novel technique and new um, technology, it's not done yet, and there aren't any studies looking at that quite yet. I think the hernia cases are one of the most frustrating of all of them. You know, a lot of patients just have bad outcomes, and some of the things that can be done interventionally are just so short-term and limited that it's very frustrating for the patient and for the practitioners who have to take care of them. So one more question. Sorry, looking at what was. Yep. Exferal. Oh, 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 I see. Yeah. Um, so, so repeat the question. Yeah. So he was asking about the liposomal bupivacaine that's available, um, using that in the injection, which would cause a prolonged effect of the local anesthetic versus a catheter. Um, like I said, I, I think. The formulation of the liposomal bupivacaine is fairly new, um, so there, there aren't really any great studies looking at long-term long effects. But like I said, I think as the availability of that becomes more common and the price isn't as high for patients, it might be something that can definitely be used to try to use instead of a catheter. So we're going to move on to Dr. Badiola talking about pharmacologic management. I think for some people it's very interesting. What do I do with these people when they're in my clinic? Also, think of complex cases that you'd like to bring up as a discussion point if we have time at the end. Dr. Badiola? Great. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to talk about the pharmacological uh, treatments for um, these three syndromes. Um, there's, not, there's not a lot of great studies, and, and I'll show a couple at the end um, looking at um, specific pharmacological treatments for these syndromes. It's more as these are targeted as neuropathic pain syndromes and we treat them as such. Um, but I do want to go over a, a little bit. I know that some of this has already been, uh, it's already gone over by Dr. Presbykowski, but um, for post-thoracotomy syndrome, this is actually a picture from a uh, case report um, online um, showing um, a uh, somebody who has post-thoracotomy syndrome over the fifth and sixth um, uh, ribs, um, showing uh, on 3D CD, CT reconstruction how there is some um, peri... Um, showing entrapment of the fifth intercostal nerve uh, or chronic periostitis around that area. And you can see, or you can imagine how that fifth intercostal nerve can get entrapped 
uh, in that area with some scarring as well as some extra bone formation. And so the exact cause of um, post-thoracotomy pain syndrome is not completely known. Um, we, we do attribute it to intercostal nerve uh, injury or intercostal neuroma. Um, but there's other things that you want to evaluate as well in these patients. A lot of times we'll see them in clinic six months or so or, or even later after they've had their surgery, they're still complaining of pain. And the pain initially may have been over that intercostal nerve region, but now it's a little bit more diffuse. And a lot of the times they develop other things as well on top of that that need to be evaluated and treated as well. Um, and when you see them later on, um, you know, after they develop more, this more diffuse pain, you want to look at other things which could have been injured during the procedure or later on, things like injury to some of the muscles in that area. Um, some of them, there have been case reports of brachial plexus injury, um, pleuritic pain. Um, and then I put down personality traits may play a strong role as well, just like any other chronic pain syndrome where they come in, they've had this pain now for six months or longer. They also have you know, in, in this case, um, a lot of these are done for cancer. They also have the depression and anxiety related to that. And so that needs to get evaluated and treated as well if you're going to make any progress um, with the actual pain syndrome. So this is a, um, a picture kind of showing that there's other nerves that could be injured as well. We're, we're always thinking about the intercostal nerves. And they do carry most of the pain information in the area where the thoracotomy is done. But there's other nerves that could be injured as well. Um, for example, the skin, ribs, parietal pleura, those are the things that are usually carried by the intercostal nerves. The uh, viscera is um, transmitted by autonomic and vagus nerve, and then the phrenic nerves themselves can carry uh, pain information. They're not, they're not just involved in, in movement of the diaphragm. Um, so the patients come in, they complain of, of typical neuropathic symptoms for the most part. Burning, obviously, is the most common. Allodynia, which is uh, uh, pain... Uh, to a non-painful stimulus. They describe the pain as sharp. Um, and they may also have other pain symptoms as well. So they can get shoulder pain and uh, myofascial pain in their back. Because if you can imagine, if they started off with pain in this area, you see them a year later and they haven't been really moving that area because it hurts, they start to develop some, some myofascial and disuse type pain in the shoulder um, and in the lower or in the mid-back. So treatment ideally depends on the etiology. Um, you want to kind of tease out whether they do have some myofascial pain uh, I and mean, maybe some therapy that can be, um, that can be done to, to get them moving uh, again. You want to rule out things like thoracic radicular disease, which is not super common, but it can present in the same way with pain kind of radiating around the chest wall. Uh, in these patients who have uh, cancer, uh, you want to rule out things like postherpetic neuralgia and shingles, um, and then myofascial pain and then deconditioning and muscle disuse pain as well. For post-mastectomy pain, again, this is the uh, nerve that's typically considered to be what's injured, the intercostal brachial nerve. But you can see in this area where the surgery is done, there's multiple other nerves as well that could be injured. Um, you can get the medial cutaneous nerve can be injured a little bit higher up, um, the thoracodorsal nerve, and then the actual intercostal nerves themselves that kind of wrap around uh, the chest wall as well. And it has, it has a high incidence, as we've talked about. Um, you can see it. And it's been reported um, not only in big chest or breast procedures, but in, in multiple other procedures as well. So simple things like lumpectomies. Um, it's definitely more common in lymph node dissections. Radiation can contribute to it as well. Um, and then again, we think it's usually due to intercostal brachial nerve, but there could be some other reasons as well. So finally, for post-inguinal uh, hernia pain, this is very common. Um, we've all seen it. Again, it has to do not only with 
the frequency of pain um, or the uh, prevalence of pain with it, but also because we perform so many of these procedures. Um, the exact etiology is unknown. It could be injury to, to multiple nerves in that area, and I'll show you a picture of this afterwards. Um, but it could also be non-neuropathic. So it may not be that the nerve is entrapped or injured, but that there's some fibrosis uh, or scar tissue that develops around the area where the mesh is placed. Um, and this is kind of a picture of that showing where um, the mesh is usually placed um, where you have the iliohypergastric nerve, which is usually a little bit more cephalad to it. Um, but you also have the uh, ilioinguinal and genital femoral nerves kind of coursing along with one of these spermatic um, vessels where the mesh is usually placed. And you can imagine if these nerves are transected, um, you can get a little neuroma that forms where they're transected. Or if that scar tissue forms around the mesh or the mesh is actually entrapping that nerve, you can imagine how that can get irritated and, and cause pain as well. And so the big thing is, we're, this is all mostly neuropathic pain. This is usually the way people describe it. Um, but there's a lot of things that these things have in common. And the, the main thing is that when you see them, just like any other chronic pain syndrome, most of them will have other disorders associated with them. And Dr. Cheetah will talk to you a little bit more about this as well. But things like mood disorders, sleep disorders, and if these aren't treated, it's usually really hard um, to get their, their, their pain under control. So I'm going to briefly talk about um, some of the pharmacological treatments for them. I'll, I'll concentrate on the ones that have some uh, proven efficacy for this type of pain, um, things like uh, the anti-epileptics, specifically the gabapentinoids, uh, antidepressants like duloxetine, tricyclic antidepressants, I'll focus on amitriptyline, um, opioids, and then to a lesser extent anti-inflammatories and acetaminophen. Um, a lot of this will be a review. Um, because again, there is not a lot of long-term studies looking at these specific disease processes chronically. Most of the studies are done looking around the perioperative period. So are there ways to prevent this from forming um, by doing nerve blocks in the perioperative period? Uh, or, um, or are there any medicines that we can introduce in the perioperative period um, to, to, to lessen the risk of developing um, these syndromes afterwards? So this was a, uh, a meta-analysis and systematic review um, done by Dr. Finnerup and, and others um, last year. And what they looked at was 196 published results looking at various neuropathic conditions. Some of the conditions that they evaluated in this also included um, some of the conditions we've talked about. But in general, they looked at, um, at, at multiple types of neuropathic pain. They also looked at 33 unpublished results um, for, for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons was to see um, if the effect size of, of the published results was better than, than the unpublished results, and of course they were. Um, and what their main uh, primary endpoint was uh, the number needed to treat for 50% pain relief. And they looked at multiple medications that we typically associate with analgesia. Um, and again, they noted that um, this was for neuropathic pain as a whole and not just for the, the conditions we're talking about, but what they did notice as well was that there was really no evidence of different efficacies for most drugs in distinct neuropathic pain conditions other than things that are more peripheral. So, for example, like post neuralgia where maybe things like capsaicin or lidocaine patches tend to work a little bit better. Um, the other thing that they noted um, was uh, how short most of these trials are. Um, most of the trials last for significantly less than 12 weeks. So, for example, the ones that are done perioperatively, they'll put somebody on gabapentin for two or three days after surgery and see if they develop chronic pain later on. Um, for these later on, most of these are only followed for up to 12 weeks, and a very small amount of the, a very small amount of the uh, studies, of the 196 studies reported, um, really looked out longer than 12 weeks. And this is what their final um, results show. Basically, they, they, they broke it down to their recommendations. 
based again on their primary endpoint of uh, greater than 50% relief. Um, and what they noted was that for all types of neuropathic pain conditions, this is usually what works the best. And it's usually gabapentin and the gabapentinoids like pregabalin. Um, the uh, SNRIs, the serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, um, specifically duloxetine is one that we use most commonly, um, but venlafaxine as well. And then tricyclic antidepressants, which are also um, serotonin and norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors. They consider these uh, first line. And import importantly, it's, it's, you, know, you want to note the, the uh, doses that they noted efficacy at. A lot of the times we'll see patients who come in, like I've been on gabapentin, I've been on pregabalin, I've been on uh, duloxetine. And when you really look down into it, they've only been on very small doses. So they're put on 100 milligrams. It doesn't work. They stop it or... Um, their provider stops it, and they basically check off the box saying that these don't work for me. So you want to make sure that um, the doses have been uh, taken to, to adequate levels, usually in the 600 to 900 milligrams three times a day or so. Um, other medications that they looked at uh, with weak recommendations for use included tramadol. That they considered it a second line. Tramadol is, as we'll see in a minute, um, is an opioid as well, but it does have some norepinephrine reuptake inhibition, unlike some of the other opioids. And although what they considered the strong opioids, things like morphine, oxycodone, they considered third line. Um, there was some efficacy associated with them, um, but because of all the side effects associated with them, they considered it to be um, third line. And then they looked at other medications that they didn't consider that had inconclusive recommendations or strong recommendations against use. Um, and a lot of these we tend to use as third-line options, so things like, um, what was it, like oxcarbazepine and, and topiramate. Sometimes we'll put on if they failed everything else, um, but there really wasn't great recommendations based on that. And again, that, that has to do with either efficacy or just the number of studies. There's not a lot of studies looking at these pain conditions using these specific meds. And then they had um, strong recommendations against uh, lamictal and, and mixalatine. And this is just another table kind of outlining that, again, um, that based on this systematic review, the best quality of evidence was for the SNRIs, duloxetine, uh, and venlafaxine up to a point, and then uh, the gabapentinoids, pregabalin, gabapentin, uh, gabapentin extended release, and then gabapentin enocarbil, which is basically a prodrug of gabapentin with better absorption. So I'm, this, a lot of this may be a review for a lot of you. Um, I'm just going to really quickly go through the, uh, the, some of the pharmacology for some of these meds that, again, based on the systematic review, sh were shown to help uh, with these chronic pain conditions. I'll start with the gabapentinoids because this is what usually everybody puts, gives these, these patients early on, um, specifically pregabalin uh, and gabapentin. Um, the way they work um, is they, they bind to the alpha-2 uh, delta subunit of these calcium, um, of these voltage-gated calcium channels. And these calcium channels are, are in a, they're, they're, uh, they're present basically everywhere on every neuron, um, but they're actually upregulated in neuropathic pain states, so in nerves that are actually injured. Um, and so that makes the gabapentin and the pregabalin um, basically search out and, and go to these injured nerves a little bit easier. Um, and what, what ends up happening is, I'm sure if you guys remember this from, from medical school or, or, or your training, um, where the, uh, the uh, pregabalin or the gabapentin binds and it blocks calcium entry into the cell. That calcium entry is needed to release neurotransmitters and specifically the rates or the, uh, the amounts of substance P and glutamate, which are pro-nociceptive um, uh, transmitters, are, are decreased. 
Um, in terms of uh, gabapentin, the oral, the, the, one of the main uh, issues with gabapentin is that the absorption of it is not linear. Um, and so as the, as the dose actually increases, the amount that the uh, body uh, absorbs decreases. So at about 100 milligrams uh, three times a day, um, the absorption is about uh, 80%. Um, and as that dose increases all the way up to the typical 1,600 uh, or up to 1,600 milligrams three times a day, um, you're only getting about 25% absorption. Um, and obviously, the 25% of the 1,600 three times a day on a milligram basis is still a lot more than the 100 milligrams at 80%. But you can see as the dose goes up, the, uh, the amount that's actually absorbed uh, decreases. 3% um, of it is bound to plasma, has negligible metabolism with drug excreted in the urine that's unchanged. Um, and importantly, I see a lot of the times um, people put patients on gabapentin if they have some kidney issues or some either acute or chronic, and they either take them off the, uh, the gabapentin. But the gabapentin itself doesn't actually um, hurt the kidney, but you do want to lower the dose um, just so that um, there's less accumulation of gabapentin and thus less side effects. Huge dose range, again, somewhat related to the, um, to the, uh, the decrease in absorption that occurs with increasing dose. Um, usually I'll start at 100 milligrams at night for older patients, go up to 100 milligrams three times a day over a few days as tolerated, and then go up from there. And in younger patients um, who don't really have other comorbidities, I'll usually start them at 300 at night, take them up to 300 three times a day um, over a few days, um, and then kind of titrate up from there. Pregabalin um, dose range goes from about 25 milligrams twice a day. You can go up to about 600 milligrams a day in divided doses. Usually that's in the 200 milligrams three times a day. Unlike gabapentin, the absorption is linear, um, and absorption is greater than 90% across the entire uh, dose range that's used. Um, the more you go up higher than 600, it starts to decrease a little bit, but um, for, for, for humans, we really rarely go over the 600 dose. Um, it's a little bit more predictable across patient populations, and again, to keep in mind is that if they do have some kidney injuries, you don't just want to stop it, stop it thinking that it's going to affect their kidneys, um, but you do want to lower the dose accordingly um, just to, to make sure that it doesn't accumulate. Um, adverse effects of uh, gabapentinoids, um, very common. We see them all the time. We usually see these more um, with aggressive increases in dose, um, and so you do want to go slow, um, and going up, especially as, if patients are older, if they have other comorbidities or on other medications that can cause um, some of these side effects. Most common by far is dizziness. Um, it's not uncommon uh, that if you ask almost 100% of patients, they'll have some form of dizziness or they'll quote unquote feel weird with it. Um, and that's usually why I'll start it at night and then kind of go up from there. Um, sleepiness or somnolence is common. Peripheral edema is common. And then um, suicidality obviously is not very common, but it is something that you want to be aware of. Um, antidepressants, Cymbalta, Duloxetine, these are, um, and, and Venlafaxine are the most common um, that we use for, um, for neuropathic pain states. They work by um, inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, and, that the, and the way that works is that normally, uh, whenever you have any kind of painful stimulus, your body actually responds by um, sending out a, um, something called descending inhibition, where you basically inhibit the pain information from reaching, reaching your central nervous system, and it does this by releasing serotonin and, nor and norepinephrine. And what the duloxetine does is it kind of keeps that, the norepinephrine and the serotonin in that um, neural junction to kind of potentiate that descending inhibition a little bit. There's some thought that it may reduce pain transmission from the periphery to the CNS, uh, but that's definitely not the main uh, mechanism of the way it works. 
Um, and these things are usually enteric coated. You take them, it goes into your gastric or your GI system, um, and they're enterically coated to protect the actual duloxetine molecules which break down in gastric secretions um, until they get into the small intestine. Um, and that leads to a two-hour delay after administration. And so usually I'll tell patients to take this at night um, because of some of the side effects associated with it. Um, maximum uh, concentrations in blood are noted at about six hours. Um, and then food um, actually um, delays the absorption a little bit by about four hours. Um, it doesn't delay how much maximum or maximally is absorbed, um, but it does prolong it um, by about four hours. It has a moderate size volume distribution with 90% of it um, plasma bound, um, but it is not affected by hepatic or renal insufficiency. And then the adverse effects are pretty common as well. By far the most common is nausea. And again, that's one of the reasons I tell people to take it at night, to hopefully they can kind of sleep through some of that nausea. Um, and then the other thing that's a little bit annoying to patients that doesn't, and a lot of people get better with time, is the, uh, the xerostomia or the uh, dry mouth. Um, and uh, that sometimes can be such a headache for patients that that may be one of the reasons they want to stop taking it. Other serious side effects, suicidality, serotonin syndrome, seizures, hypertensive crisis are relatively uncommon, um, but obviously you do want to be aware of them. Um, and then the dosing is um, varied. So for, for depression, it can be taken up to about 120 milligrams a day, um, usually uh, at about 60 milligrams twice a day. For pain reasons, um, if you're using them just for pain, um, usually we'll start them at 30 milligrams at night for a couple weeks and then kind of titrate it up from there. Um, after about 60 to 90 milligrams, if you're not going to get much response from a pain perspective, going up to 120 is probably not going to be enough, and it's probably not going to really help them all that much. Um, but you do want to at least get them up to that 60 to 90 milligrams before you say that this is going to work or not going to work. Um, the last, or one of the last ones that we'll look at is tricyclic antidepressants or amitriptyline. Again, just like um, duloxetine and uh, the SNRIs, the main way it works for pain purposes is by uh, inhibiting uh, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake um, in, the, uh, in the neural junctions. Works in the CNS by potentiating descending inhibition. Um, and it is readily absorbed from the GI tract, metabolized on first pass in the liver, large volume of distribution. Um, and amitriptyline actually is metabolized to nortriptyline. So if you ever get urine screens on your patients that are on uh, amitriptyline, you'll actually see it um, come back positive for nortriptyline. Um, and that's the reason why. Um, usually I'll start them at 25 milligrams at night. You can increase it up to 150 milligrams a day, usually at night. Um, again, because the most common, or one of the most common side effects is uh, sedation. Um, and it does have significant adverse effects. So usually this is not one of the first things I'll, I'll, I'll start a patient on. Usually I'll put them on duloxetine. Um, but um, this, is, this is another option if they develop side effects for, or, or they don't get any analgesia from the uh, duloxetine. And you can see that there's a lot of side effects associated with it. The most common ones are sleepiness. So usually patients will start taking these at night. Um, and a lot of the times they may not get much benefit in terms of pain relief, but they'll still, still want to be on it just because it is helping them sleep a little bit better. And the sleep itself over time may actually uh, improve their pain symptoms a little bit. Um, other common side effects, um, blurry vision, constipation, urinary hesitancy from its antimuscarinic effects. It does have cardiovascular effects, especially at higher doses, cardiac arrhythmias and conduction defects. Um, and then weight gain and sexual disturbances uh, are relatively common as well. All right, so opioids, um, third line, um, 
a lot of these patients require this, even though we try to max them out on uh, some of the other medications um, that we use. Um, opioids, um, this is, I mean, I, I put this up, but, you know, this is obviously a, a different uh, topic, but the history of opioids is very, very interesting. It's been used for thousands of years. Um, one of the first reported study, or one of the first reported um, things found on it was back in 3400 BC in, in Mesopotamia, where they actually uh, called it a uh, happy plant, I think it was, and, it was in, and they basically um, traded it with the Assyrians and then into Egypt, and it kind of spread it in, 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 in that fashion. And that was 3,000 years ago, more than 3,000 years ago. Um, in terms of modern use, uh, Friedrich Adam, which was a chemist in 1806, um, he actually um, isolated morphine from opium and named it after Morpheus, uh, the Greek god of dreams. Um, and the opium poppy itself, um, which is, this is the plant, but if you cut it, it, it secretes this like latex or like fluid, um, and that itself has uh, 20, 23 other alkaloids along with morphine. Some of them are analgesic, some of them are not. Um, the way they work, um, very, this is you know, obviously pretty complex, but for the most part, morphine binds to its receptor, which are located throughout the central nervous system. Um, and ultimately what it does through a cascade of different, uh, of different molecules and signals, um, it ultimately leads to opening of potassium channels and the potassium channels in, in neurons basically causes release of potassium, and that causes the cell to hypopolarize, and that decreases the rate of firing of, of this neuron. Um, and then the other thing it does is it actually reduces the amount of calcium entry as well, and that causes less release of uh, neurotransmitters at that junction at these pain, um, in these pain pathways. It's a lot more complicated than that, but it's kind of just an overview. Um, common side effects, constipation, by far the most common, it's universal, um, and uh, a lot of the times patients won't tell you about it, um, so it is something that you do want to bring up with them. Um, there's a lot of new medications out there that uh, combat constipation related due to opioid uh, side effects um, that work extremely well, so definitely bring that up with, with patients. Um, a lot of the times these things, the patient's constipation doesn't improve over time like a lot of these other symptoms, so sometimes if they have some itching that's mild to moderate, uh, and some nausea, I'll tell them, see if you can kind of stick with it, especially if they're getting some analgesic response. And a lot of the times that may or may, well, may, may, or may not, but sometimes that will get better, but it's rare that constipation will get better on its own. Um, respiratory depression and apnea are the, the biggest things. Obviously, you don't want to increase the dose too much if you're not in the hospital and have an eye in them. You don't want to send them home with, you know, three times higher doses than what they came in with. Um, sedation uh, can be common, and obviously the addiction dependency issues. Uh, I'm not, I don't have time to go through every single uh, opioid, but I, I want to touch on methadone because it does work a little bit better, in my opinion, um, on uh, neuropathic pain states. It's a, a mu opioid agonist, just like some of the other ones are. Um, but unlike the other uh, opioid agonists, it actually works on NMDA receptors, which is important in central sensitization. So when, whenever you have any kind of painful stimulus, you get this barrage of entry of, of firing into the central nervous system. Um, and you can develop something called central sensitization where your, your, your body basically has a heightened response to pain. So even if that painful stimulus goes away, if that initial barrage was long enough um, to cause neuroplastic changes in your central nervous system, that I initial injury may go away, but the pain kind of persists. And um, it's driven in part by NMDA, and uh, methadone is one of the few, if not the only one, that actually blocks that NMDA receptor. It also inhibits reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine to a much less degree, or to a lesser degree. Um, and again, that, that's important for that descending inhibition, and so it may actually help with analgesia based on that as well. The other thing is it's very cheap. 
Um, it's covered by, I've never had an insurance tell me that they don't want to cover it. Um, and, uh, and even so, a lot of patients can actually pay for it um, out of pocket. And then metabolism, it's metabolized in the liver um, and almost completely excreted in feces. And then really briefly, I'll go over uh, anti-inflammatories. We typically don't tend to use these in the long run. There's really no good studies out there looking at uh, long-term use of anti-inflammatories or specifically NSAIDs in uh, neuropathic pain conditions. Um, but we'll, we'll just briefly go over them. You have COX-1, COX-2 inhibitors, acetaminophen, um, and a lot of patients will be still be put on this um, as part of their multimodal uh, plan. Um, interestingly, there, is some there are some studies showing that NSAIDs have some non-anti-inflammatory me mechanisms uh, to analgesia as well. And this is a picture showing um, how these meds work. Again, this is a review for 99.9% .9 of you. Um, but basically, any kind of injury or trauma, for example, if uh, you know, the uh, intercostal ner brachial nerve gets, um, get da gets damaged, um, that causes arachidonic acid to be released. Um, and that arachidonic acid gets broken down or gets converted into prostaglandins, and there's an enzyme called cyclooxygenase which actually acts on that and, and speeds that up. And what NSAIDs do is to um, basically catalyze uh, that reaction and speed it up. And this is, you know, there may be some more COX enzymes, but these are the main ones that we always think about, at least clinically, where you have COX-1 and COX-2. COX-1 are the important ones, the ones that you really don't want to block. They're basically present in, in, in normal tissue. Um, they're involved in uh, protection of the GI mucosa, in renal function, uh, and in coagulation. And so the ones that we want to block for pain purposes and for inflammation purposes are more of the COX-2. Um, and these are inducible, usually brought on by trauma or any kind of injury. Um, and they're, they're the ones that lead to inflammatory pain. Um, and the way NSAIDs work, again, they block the conversion of, they block cyclooxygenase to block the conversion of arachidonic acid to prostaglandins. And this is one of the main mediators of inflammation. Um, but they also um, work peripherally uh, in the sense that wherever you have uh, inflammation, it actually sensitizes nerve endings and um, that can actually cause, obviously, um, uh, pain. Um, that peripheral injury and inflammation can lead to, to CNS prostaglandin synthesis and central sensitization. So wherever you have your injury, um, you have an inflammatory um, milieu, milieu that kind of forms in that area with a bunch of mediators, including prostaglandins. That sensitizes the nerve endings. The nerve endings go up to the, to the spinal cord and the central nervous system and sensitize that. The other thing that you have is Wherever you have that injury, that entire milieu of different chemicals leaks into the bloodstream, that gets up into the central nervous system and sensitizes the spinal cord as well in different areas, not just in the area where um, the nerve that's injured um, basically goes up to. And the thought is that uh, COX-1 and COX-2 are expressed constitutively in the dorsal root ganglion um, as well as the ventral gray matter, inhibiting uh, COX-2 in the central uh, nervous system actually decrease um, hyperalgesia. And a lot of, um, not a lot, but there's some studies looking at uh, using anti-inflammatories uh, perioperatively uh, to kind of hopefully decrease that central sensitization that can come on from uh, COX-2 uh, in the central nervous system. Uh, kinetics, almost any patient, you can get, you can get them an anti-inflammatory, an NSAID, either IV, IM, rectal, topical, um, there's some other information there I won't go into. Um, the important thing is that most of them are weak acids other than the uh, COX-2 inhibitors. 
um, which are typically non-acidic, and that low PK actually uh, makes it easier for these molecules to get into the area of the inflammation. Most are absorbed in the small intestine. Peak concentrations vary. Um, and importantly here, um, you can see how there's uh, selectivity between some of these uh, medications. The ones I tend to use the most, um, and again, that's just from personal preference. There really is no specific um, guidelines for this, but I tend to use meloxicam the most just because it's only once a day. Um, it's a little bit more selective. It's relatively cheap, um, and uh, it's just easier for patients to take. Uh, adverse effects, um, we all know them, uh, GI ulceration and bleeding, platelet inhibition, nephrotoxicity, and cardiovascular uh, injury. And then the last one I'll take a look at is acetaminophen. Um, this is actually not a traditional NSAID. Um, it actually inhibits central prostaglandin synthesis with minimal peripheral effects. And again, that just goes to hopefully um, decreasing that uh, central sensitization that can occur from just continued pain input into the central nervous system. Um, it has no effects on platelets or uh, gastric mucosa, and I think it works well um, when you combine it with, uh, with traditional uh, NSAIDs or kind of alternate uh, one with the other. Note to self, don't use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. I'm simple, and I take one note out of everything. So I'm going to talk about uh, a multimodal approach uh, to the treatment of, of pain. And we all know all of us treat pain patients, right? So not every, every one is, is a, uh, uh, we have a hammer with one nail. We have to have a multimodal approach. So if we look at this multimodal approach, it has to do with physical exercise. And that's with all of these odd neuropathic pain disorders. Exercise is critical, and I'll show you some data on that. It's all about using some no, new innovative things. How many people have heard of graded motor imagery? How many have, have actually used it on patients? How many had a good response? Yeah. How many therapists are there? Not many. So this is kind of out-of-the-box stuff we have to do. And then also cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is interesting. This is a study looking, and we're just going to focus on exercise for a minute. So this is 432 breast cancer patients who completed an online survey covering their treatment and demographic background, et cetera. And they looked at current exercise levels. Sedentary women were more likely to experience shoulder limitations after post-mastectomy, um, muscular uh, chest wall, weight gain, lymphedema, breathlessness, than their physicality, active counterparts. So how many times do we encourage patients to walk? How many, any, any oncologists in here? Okay, so I won't offend anybody. So I, I tell, ask oncologists, I said, and these are people who specialize in breast cancer. Do you ever ask your patients, do they exercise? Why would I do that? Yeah. Hmm. Do you ever ask your patients uh, what their diet is like? Why would I do that? You know, because the white count looks good. <laughs> so we can do another round of chemotherapy, right? No offense, but it's a lot more complex than that. Now, this is a really interesting one. This is methods to improve rehabilitation of patients following breast cancer surgery. It's a good systematic review. Looked at the effectiveness of rehabilitation methods in improving post-operative physical and psychological outcomes. Because we always forget about the psychological part. The fact that I'm a pain psychologist, I always think about it. They looked at 16 articles that met their exclusion criteria. And there was excellent evidence for narrowly focused exercise, rehabilitation, improving physical outcome particularly for shoulder mobility and lymphedema. Many patients after mastectomies are not sent to physical therapy. 
which makes no sense to me because you're increasing the likelihood of lymphedema plus psychological issues as depression and distress. But again, it's not part of our, of sort of our, our active treatment. And there, there are inconclusive results, but in general, it improved the psychosocial functioning of these women. Now, this is the most important study, and this is a one meta-analysis, and there's been two other ones. What this showed was is that people after uh, breast cancer diagnosis and initial treatment, that if they, there was an inverse relationship between physical activity and all-cause breast cancer-related death. Really, there's another study that showed that if women after, and particularly estrogen-based breast cancer, that if women exercise 20 minutes three times a day after they've had the initial tumor removed and chemotherapy, that it reduces their, their, re, their, it reduces their recurrence by 53%. And that's been repeated three times. 20 minutes three times a day. Why would that be? Because when you exercise, what happens to your fat tissues? They shrink, which means your estrogen levels, free-floating estrogen decreases. It seems so simple, but we're not even encouraging patients to do this, right? We become so mechanical and mechanistic in our approach is that you survive this fourth round of chemotherapy, at a girl, way to go, awesome, you know? But what can we do going, pro going forward? Lots of information about diet, you know? Um, Anti-inflammatory diets we've all heard about. There's a great book written by David Savant, has anyone seen it? It's called, um, I forget the name of it, but what he was was an MD-PhD that had an inoperable brain tumor, and they said, you have six months to live. And he said, eh, I don't believe you. So he went out and did a research, and he, he got this very strict anti-inflammatory diet, lived 17 years. He just died two years ago. So again, are we really using everything in the arsenal to help our patients? Or again, we become so mechanized in medicine, it's about your blood levels and what your response to the, to the molecule is or to your surgery. You know, all of these things are really important. So encouraging patients to exercise, getting them into the right treatment, no matter what their pain condition, is going to have a positive outcome. What about the comorbidities, mood, anxiety, and sleep disorders? So we've been very focused on opiates, right, as I said it initially. So my feeling is, is that if you are a good practitioner and you effectively treat people's pain or effectively tr treat their mood, anxiety, and sleep, you will have significant opioid sparing, right? And we'll talk a little bit about this. So looking at, at some of the data, this is major depression um, in people with pain by clinic. And you can see that pain clinics are about 52%, psychiatric about 38%. Uh, dental about 85, but it really varies in the clinic. A lot of the research you see on mood disorders and pain are taken out of pain clinics. Who gets sent to pain clinics? The easiest patient, Mrs. Jones, who uses two perkadoodles a day, or is the one that's always coming in and always pushing the limits and always looks like they're going to jump off the bridge? That's who gets sent to pain clinics. So if we're sampling from that community, we're going to have biased data. But I would say what this demonstrates is about 50% of patients who suffer from chronic pain suffer also from a mood disorder. And duloxetine, I think it might be good for neuro neuropathic pain, ain't so good for depression. So again, when you get people, pain is a perception, right? So when I'm less depressed, my pain is not going to be so onerous to me. Now this is interesting looking at mood and anxiety disorders associated with chronic pain. This is a national comorbidity survey. So they looked at association between chronic pain and common mood and anxiety disorders. The sample size was over 5,800 people, pretty significant. Look at these results. Across the board, this is chronic pain versus general population. 
significantly higher in chronic pain with any mood disorder, depression, dysthymia, generalized anxiety disorder, panic, phobia, agoraphobia, and PTSD. So our patients who come in with chronic pain have noteworthy significant mood disorders and anxiety disorders. And let's just step back into the opiate world. I promise you I wouldn't, but I'm going to. What are two things that opiates do outside of the analgesia and the euphoria? They're, yeah, well, they're, they're axiolytic also. They're anti-anxiety agents. There's some evidence that they're hedonic. So some people get an antidepressant effect from it. So we're always jumping to the kind of conclusion that the patient is just drug-seeking or pushing their, their limits up when maybe they're self-treating their anxiety and depression. And that when you effectively treat these with the right psychotherapeutic agents and molecules, you have a better outcome. How many people think that they're effective at managing sleep disorders in pain patients? Wow, nobody. So I'm giving a seminar tomorrow, 440, on pain and sleep. I'm only going to give you a little bit of this, right? Um, but we do a terrible job of managing sleep disorders, right? This is a study by a couple of colleagues, Lance McCracken, who's in the UK, and uh, Nicole Tang. And look at the, look at the data. These are people coming into a pain management center and an anesthesia pain, pain center. So no clinical insomnia is the gray, sort of sub-threshold, moderate, severe. Look at this. Severe, about 45%, and moderate, about, you know, about 16%. Pretty significant. So I would say that anywhere between 50 and 80% of patients who come to pain clinics have a primary sleep disorder. What does sleep, sleep do to pain? increases it, right? So we have this cycle here of pain, sleep, mood, anxiety, all feeding on itself, right? Their pain gets worse, their mood gets worse, their sleep gets worse. So what, what are some things we can do? Well, let's go back a second. So you say it makes it worse. Why, how does it make it worse? Does anyone know? How does, how does sleep deprivation make pain worse? I'm going to give away all my secrets for tomorrow, and you won't come to my talk, so maybe I won't tell you. One is it, 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 it produces, it increases the release of interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, so they have more inflammation. Second, experimental studies will show you that it decreases their pain tolerance. When you get a patient really getting that REM restorative sleep, and there's lots of good medications I'm going to talk about tomorrow and some CBT and some things you can do, their pain gets better and their mood gets better. Anyone who's ever gone through medical school, nursing school, remember sleep deprivation? How did you feel? You felt horrible. And there was a study about fibromyalgia, which is our next talk in a couple hours, but fibromyalgia where they sleep-deprived medical students and they started to develop widespread pain. There's all these relationships here, and you can't be myopic and just look at one part of this. So sleep is important. Mood is important. So about cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy has been around for a long, long time, because I'm that old. Um, and the process of cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty clear. There's two things pain patients do. is catastrophizing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The pain's going to get worse, and I won't be able to go to my daughter's wedding. And kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement, right? So they don't move. They get more deconditioned. They have more pain. They catastrophize more. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a way of kind of guiding the patient to reconceptualize their role in getting better, right? Too often, we don't put responsibility on the patient, right? This is your pain. This, your life is a country western song. I get it. But what are you going to do to change it? Your dog will come back. Someone will get your pickup, right? Your love will come back. 
But we try to do is get patients to be more proactive than reactive, and it's specific skills. Relaxation therapy, which has been around for a long time. I like mindfulness meditation, stress management, cognitive restructuring, skill consolidation, rehearsal, and relapse. It's a very specific type of process. So it's been effective in a variety of pain conditions of arthritis, sickle cell disease, chronic low back pain, TMJ, lupus, and pain in breast cancer patients. Um, this is a really interesting study that I found. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for distress and pain in breast cancer patients. So it's a meta-analysis. So they looked at CBT techniques for distress and pain in patients who are breast cancer patients. There are 20 stu studies that use CBT with, with these patients were identified, and the effect size were calculated. It, re it revealed that the effect sizes for distress and for pain were significant, indicating that 62 and 69% of breast cancer patients in the CBT group had improvement in distress and pain just with the CBT intervention. That's pretty impressive to me, 69% improvement in pain. Greater motor imagery, again, there's about six people who have you know, had greater motor imagery. Really interesting process. Lorimar Mosley, who was a physical therapist, but also got a PhD in neuroscience, and his group in Australia really kind of were pioneers in this. And, and greater motor imagery is about retraining the brain. It's rebooting the pain. We all know when patients have chronic pain, where, where is the pain located? Above C1, right? It might hurt down here. And I tell patients right off the bat, having chronic pain is like being a diabetic. It's real, it ain't going away, and it is a disease of your brain at this point. It is not a disease of your low back. It is process in your brain, but everything we do is below C1. And no offense to my interventional guys, they were all, well, two of them were fellows for me, and I tell them the first lecture that everything you're going to learn how to do has a shelf life of a tuna sandwich, right? <laughs> it's helpful. It's helpful, it's, it's diagnostic, it has its place. But if you don't treat the brain, which is where everything is, then we're never gonna have a change in the way we, we, we sort of move the needle in terms of patients, patients not suffering, right? We were, I was at a, 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 at a conference in Colorado last weekend. It was just some of this neat neuroscience that's going on where these two neuroscientists, one at, at UT, University of Texas at Denver, and one at Pittsburgh, on animal models were looking at targeting certain genes and, and expressions and actually reversing chronic pain. That's pretty cool, right? But it's at the brain level. So graded motor imagery, really it's a, it's a therapeutic technique. It began about 20 years ago. It's been around that long. Again, it was developed by this group in Australia. Uh, Laura Mayer Mosley uh, kind of created the sort of the, he was sort of the spokesman for it. And it's progressively expanding. So it, initially, it's about sort of, it was initially for phantom limb pain, sort of the mirror therapy you ever see on TV, but that's like the last part of it. So it's been expanded to low back pain. I had a, great, I had a wonderful uh, example of this. I had a woman who was a professional, she had a mastectomy, and she had post-mastectomy, kind of like, almost like a phantom limb pain, a lot of neuropathic pain. My therapist worked with her for about three months. She had a 30% reduction in her pain. Pretty impressive, you know, with very other interventions. So again, it's, it's a very important kind of strategy. So it's based on this research, the brain is adaptable, right? And changes the over course of our lives. And the, the, the brain has sort of this retrained process. So we all know that there's like neuro tags where the pain is located. Like if it's my left hip, the neuro tag is up here. The idea of GMI is to shrink that tag and then shrink the pain. So it uses these brain exercises. When you talk to your patients who have chronic pain, ask them this, 
do you kind of feel like you're disoriented in terms of your right-left orientation? 80% of them will say, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of feeling like I don't know my left from my right. So a lot of what GMI is is left-right orientation. It's done on an iPad and a lot of repetitive kind of things. The mirror therapy is kind of the last part of it. So this starts with laterality training, left versus right, left versus right. Then explicit motor imagery, thinking about your body differently, trying to retrain the pain. And then the mirror therapy in some patients, and what we found is incredibly increase in, in, in function. Another case study was a, a gentleman who was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam, shrapnel wounds, lost his leg, had phantom limb pain for over 45 years. Great guy, you know, and very minimal psychopathology, which is probably why it helped in some ways, because he was very motivated. He went through this, he had a 40, about 45% reduction in pain after 40 years of phantom limb pain. And he had been through all kinds of different treatments, didn't work. And again, it's not just like any other thing we're talking about. It's not, nothing's a cure-all. But, you know, how many people take care of patients with complex regional pain syndrome, right? Pretty complex, right? How many really do well long-term? Not that many. Stimulators are important. Blocks are important. Medications are important. But if you can do this multimodal approach and retrain the brain while you're doing all of these other things, while you're changing the signal, you're going to get phenomenal re results. So greater motor imagery has been around for a long, long time. I think it's very, very effective. And, and the brain is very, very powerful, you know, and we're just not really sort of uh, tackling that very well. So in practice, it, you have to really, I'm going to give you some websites, but it, wherever you live, you have to try to find if someone's been trained in this. I mean, literally been trained, not someone with some just knuckle dragger that says, here, put a, a, a mirror between your leg, and that's, motor, that's greater motor imagery, because it's not. That's like the 10th step. I'm not kidding you. Most patients, they said, oh, yeah, I did that. I said, well, what did the therapist do with you? Uh, he put this mirror between my legs and said, look at it. And I went, that's not, a that's not exactly graded motor imagery, but that's okay. <laughs> well, they went and got coffee. So the bottom line is it's a multimodal approach for these odd neuropathic pain syndromes, for any pain syndrome, right? And it, and it has to do with interventional medicine, you know, which can be extremely effective. Pre pre I think the preemptive analgesia is really powerful. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we prevented people developing pain? That would be awesome. Um, I think pharmacotherapy, getting that right balance, but you have to target pain, sleep, and mood. It is the holy trinity, and we often only target one part of it. So the other two are just going to keep cooking the pain. Physical therapy, particularly patients who have post-mastectomy, getting that mobility going, even people just getting them to walk a little bit might change the sort of the dynamics long term. Cognitive behavioral therapy is extremely powerful, right? What's one of the problems of getting cognitive behavioral therapy? What? Right. And access. That you, you can get into a pope, the pope, faster than you can get into a CBT therapist or a psychiatrist, right? Has everyone seen the new CDC guidelines? Another one of my rants? Really? They all sound great, but it's not, it's not going to work. There's not an access. So you have to be creative if you want to take patients better. The pharmacotherapy, you'll get down. That's not a problem, really. I mean, we, you're, you're going to be good at that. But it's going in your community and finding the other player. It's finding a physical therapist that is not absolutely mortified by taking care of a chronic pain patient. I think that's just as hard. A physical therapist that really wants to take care of these patients and sees it with passion and sees that it's something that's a challenge to do. That is really hard to find. Finding mental health people who actually have some training in pain management. 
you know, to be part of the team. Getting on some of these websites and trying to figure out, you know, is there someone who does graded motor imagery, particularly when you're doing these odd neuropathic pain disorders. But again, you have to sort of think outside the box and you need to build this team because it doesn't exist anymore. Interdisciplinary pain care is, is gone. So you're going to have to build it in your community or you'll just continue to be frustrated with bad results and bad outcomes and you feel like you're just kind of holding things together for the patient and that's not very satisfying, is it? So here's the take-home points. Treatment should be multimodal. There is no great monotherapy. Medications, interventions, CBT, physical therapy, good history and physical exam. Things change over time, right? Patient comes in and says, you know, I'm experiencing a lot more pain. Don't immediately think that they're opioid seeking. Maybe there's new pathology, particularly in patients that are cancer patients. You know, lots of things patients are, you know, in a good state for years and then they have recurrencies. Um, again, don't assume the post-thoracotomy pain syndrome is, 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 you know, something you have to look at. Concomitant sleep and mood disorders. Learning, how, if you can learn how to manage sleep effectively with your patients, you will see a significant change in their, in their whole demeanor and their response to therapies. So let's look at this case study, because you've all been awake, at least the ones that are here. So this is the 52-year-old woman diagnosed with estrogen-based breast cancer. She underwent bilateral mastectomy, followed by radiation therapy, chemotherapy, was placed on an aromatase inhibitor medication. Several months post-operatively, she began to note burning pain. Uh, she was placed on a therapeutic dose of gabapentin. Um, it improved her, her symptoms, but um, it became more diff diffuse and intense over time, and she began to experience depression. So you're all experts in this now, right? So what would be your next steps? One, change to an alternative anti-epileptic drug. She's maxed out on the gabapentin, and we're going to try pregabalin. Consider a spinal cord stimulator trial. Refer to behavioral health consultation. All of the above, or one in three. How many people say one? How many people say two? Three? How many say all the above? And how many say one in three? Okay. So the right answer is one in three, right? The spinal cord stimulator, you wouldn't be the next thing you would do unless you have a boat payment, right? <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but you wouldn't do that first, right? You would change the medications and get their depression treated before you jump to a st stimulator. Now, this is the next case. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Badiola on this case. So this is actually a case that he dealt with and got a really wonderful outcome. Dr. Badiola, is everyone thinking of difficult cases you want to talk about? Yes? Um, so this is a 42-year-old uh, patient I took care of uh, in my prior practice. Um, she had a history of uh, inguinal hernia repair uh, about nine months prior to when I first saw her. Um, and it began about two months after she had her surgery. She went back to uh, the general surgeon. They ruled out hernia. They ruled out anything. Um, and basically, she had been taking, since her surgery, oxycodone 10 milligrams four times a day. Um, and that's when she came to see me and, and really hadn't been tried on anything else. Um, when I first saw her, I, I started her on gabapentin, titrated it up uh, to about, nine, I think it was 900 milligrams three times a day. It was on, on the higher end. Um, and she had some mild pain relief with that, still continued to take the oxycodone. And at that point, um, she had very classical symptoms of, of post-hernia pain, uh, burning pain down. Um, basically along the inguinal uh, nerve distribution. Um, we did some nerve blocks that provided her really good relief, again, for only two weeks, unfortunately. 
Um, and what we ended up doing was she really wanted to get off uh, her medications and we ended up uh, inserting, this is not an actual picture from that, but it was something similar where um, we, uh, we placed uh, a couple of uh, spinal cord stimulator leads along the actual, um, uh, not in the inguinal canal, it was a peripheral lead, uh, along the, uh, the path of the inguinal uh, nerve. Um, and uh, she did really well with that. Um, I followed her until I left that practice um, and uh, we were able to get her off the oxycodone uh, and um, she continued gabapentin at night um, and I think it was more just because it helped her sleep a little bit better um, but she really didn't have any pain at all uh, during the day and this was about eight or nine months after um, we did this she was still doing pretty well. So it's kind of an interesting way of using something that's a little bit you know not standard and helping the patient get uh, good relief. So any questions, thoughts, difficult uh, uh, cases. Before I want to thank my colleagues for their work on this.